Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting high above the aptly named Freedom Boat Club Marina on Anna Maria Sound and Perico Island in Florida. Joining me from another island, much further away, but much closer to home, David Moser. Yes, great to see you, Jeremiah. I just realized when you said that, you're currently in the state that is right now housing both Trump and Bolsonaro. Well, we were having drinks last night and, you know, I said, <laughs> Bolt, baby, you know, you got to find your own thing. None of this copycat insurrection. Yeah, that's that's so unoriginal. I have to say, having really only <clears throat> heard about Florida via, say, CNN, BBC and the Chinese state media, it actually... I don't know. I'm kind of enjoying myself in the United States these few weeks. Now, I know I'm going back to Beijing uh, at the end of the month. I, I, I get that. And don't get me wrong, fellow listeners, that United States comes with a huge assortment of baggage, bullshit, and just general you know, weirdness. But here's the thing. Uh, tell me what you think, David. As somebody who has spent your life also kind of bouncing between countries and cultures, I find that when I'm in a particular place for a certain amount of time, you know, every every place, every country, every culture comes with their own particular brand of bullshit. But I find that if I'm in a particular place over time, my ability to deal with one particular brand of bullshit tends to go down the longer I'm there. And then I go to another country and not to say that another country, whether it's back home to the U.S. or go from China to India or China to Thailand or China to, you know, Taiwan, for that matter. Don't get those, those places also have their problems and they also have their challenges and difficulties. But because mm -hmm. I'm now in a new environment, I feel like I can I handle those things better. My reservoir of patience and uh, sympathy is higher. So I find that, you know, having been in China continuously for nearly, you know, three years, my level of adaptability to the Chinese particular brand of bullshit had kind of redlined. And, mm -hmm. you know, now I'm back in the U.S. No, I'm sure if I'm here for another, if I was here for three years, I'd be kind of, I would be fed up with this place too. But I have to say, it has been nice to be back in the States. The, the just sheer variety of drink choices at a 7-Eleven <laughs> is just blowing right. my mind. But I have to say, too, that I think it has also refreshed me. And I feel like that when I go back to Beijing at the end of the month um, and I'm dropped back into whatever COVID weirdness is going on, I think I'll be actually better able to handle it for at least another few months than I would be if I hadn't taken this break. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, certainly, as lived, living as long as we have in Beijing and uh, in China, we certainly have interiorized a lot of our daily activities that don't even seem like hassles or adjustments because we're so used to them. And then you go to another place. You mentioned 7-Elevens. Uh, Taiwan has a 7-Eleven on every, every intersection, more numerous than Starbucks uh, in Chicago. Uh, I sort of feel like I'm back in the U.S. in some way, although with the the stuff that they sell there, there is a wide variety of drinks here as, as well. And I'm taking full advantage of it, by the way. A quick update on me. You and your wife, uh, before all this hit, uh, had already gone, done your duty to uh, help mutate the virus. For me, I had an interesting experience, which was... Uh, being in Beijing just before uh, December 30th, which is when my plane flight was to come to Taiwan to visit my wife and daughter. We're both here now. I was uh, very much a recluse, a hermit, a good boy. I stayed indoors. I said, I don't want to get COVID before Je uh, December 30th, because then I'll never be able to get it 
across to Taiwan to reunite with my family after three years. So I worked very hard at that. I succeeded. December 28th came along. I was looking forward to the plane flight. And then I got the news from my wife that she had contracted the big C herself. (laughs) So God has a sense of humor. Um, I spent the first uh, four or five days, for three days, in a hotel with her just across town and waited for her to become negative. I mean, test negative. She's always has a tendency to be negative, but she was positive with COVID. Everything was looking pretty good. I was getting ready to move back in. And then she it turns out she had a pretty bad case. She got uh, temperature again and also higher than normal. The doctors, they said they should, she should check herself into a hospital because it was, this was not normal oh my God. manifestation. And so she had uh, some very high fevers and was in the hospital, but then didn't t- tested negative, was still was having high fevers. So I got a little glimpse of what the, the situation is here in terms of the hospitals. She was still uh, positive, so they couldn't allow her into a regular ward. But interestingly, uh, in Taiwan also, they're having a little bit of a hospital crisis, and they could not get her into a a quarantine ward because there were too many people crammed in there. So she spent one night or almost two nights outside the hospital in a sort of, I don't know what it was, a a little courtyard or something there with some beds outside. Camping with COVID. It's exactly what she was doing. Luckily, it didn't rain uh, much, uh, but, you know, she was getting drips out there and everything and then back in. So uh, that was quite uh, interesting. Uh, Everything is fine now, by the way. It turns out she just had a bad case, which is one reason I don't want to get the damn thing. So as soon as I could, I got a Moderna jab, went to a clinic, got that. And it was very interesting that they did not know anything, the people at the clinic anyway, much of anything about the situation in the mainland. They really had, they did not really, they had never seen a Jian Kong Bao, the app that we have to download. They'd never seen one. They wanted to see which, uh, what other vaccines I'd gotten in China. And I showed them the people who looked at, at it, the nurses and people looked at it had never heard of these vaccines or they had heard of them, but didn't, weren't quite sure whether I could take the Moderna one after having had three doses of that and had to make some special telephone calls. And we're pretty much, despite what you might think, we're living this poorest, uh, information-rich society, and they're, they're only three hours plane ride apart, the, the, the island, the renegade island and the, the mainland. And yet here, they really did not know much about the, the, the medical issues in Beijing. I filled them in on a lot of details, and they were quite interested in that. Despite all the, the lack of information going back and forth, the situation here, I would say, is similar to the way it was in Beijing, probably, at the just at the very beginning when cases started to go up. And it's certainly not at a crisis situation here at, to the extent that it is in, in China and the mainland. But yes, they're having a, they're having a lot of cases still. Uh, this is a very contagious version that they're, we're dealing with on both sides of the strait. I mean, talk about the information gap. You know, Being here in the States for the last couple of weeks, I'm in all the same WeChat groups I was back in <clears throat> Beijing. I'm still talking to the same people I wasn't back Beijing. Yeah, June was back in Beijing until this week. She flew out to uh, to Europe for a business trip. So, you know, I'm in contact with her and, and her parents and friends. But I still feel like, even though I, it's only been a few weeks since I've been in the States, I really feel like I, I have lost like the touch of reality with what's going on on the ground right. in Beijing and in, in China in general. And it makes me wonder, I mean, how do these people who have like left Beijing in like 2015, like are still like, 
writing about it in, in the same way. I, I feel like it's been only a short amount of time and I'm almost like, well, can I really say anything about what's happening in, in China? Because really, first of all, it, it feels so removed and the information isn't, that doesn't feel like it's coming through as clearly. And also, frankly, I think a lot of people there, to be fair, are also saying we're not totally sure what's happening either. Yeah, you know, no. everyone's talking about how you know my father's got it, my grandfather died, my uncle has it. You know, and and obviously there are anecdotal but not necessarily official statements of you know infection rates in the seventy percent, eighty percent in some cities. Of course, you know, everyone's been talking about the, the debt, the statistics for casualties, which, you know, at this point, nobody really knows. And who knows if we will know in the end. Right. But it it is kind of this weird vibe now that I'm, I'm out here. I, I feel kind of lucky, as we talked about our last episode, yeah. that I got COVID before I left. Right. Um, but still, I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, when I go back, I mean, uh, what's it going to look like? I have a feeling that when I get back to Beijing, though, at the end of the month, and when we reconvene around Chunjie, at least in the Beijing, when I'm here, you know, the, the, the wave kind of crested, passed over. So obviously, there's a lot of people who suffered. Many people, we don't know how many died. There were a lot of people who got very, very sick. But it sounds like things are kind of returning to even like a pre-2020 normal normal because they've take because of course the government's removed so many of the restrictions that governed our day-to-day lives. And I'm yeah, I'm not saying I'm looking forward to going back to a country where obviously a lot of people are suffering, but I think it's gonna be interesting to go back and kind of pick up um, not where I left off in December 2022, but where I left off in December. 2019 planning purposes for business planning purposes for teaching i mean all of these things suddenly are on the table one of the reasons it's hard to get good information is because it's changing so fast and there's also you know fragmentation and variation in the reaction our sort of uh kindred podcasts the the drum tower uh i listened to that the other day or yesterday and they sort of mentioned a a good point which is for most of the people these are two different viruses to the young people, it's a common cold that goes away. And then for the old people, it's something that could get much worse and could be deadly. And there's like a schism there. But there's also people who they're glad everything's all the restrictions are off and thinking things can return to normal. And it doesn't really bother them much that there's all this disease. Other people are angry and would like a accounting for this. I've have a, I have trouble explaining to my friends the psychological shock of going through the, the daily routine of testing and all the getting the, the green code and everything, going to shopping malls. But uh, despite all the layer of hassle and re- restrictions, at least when you got into a public space, you could kind of breathe a sigh of relief and think, look, everyone in here has at least a 24-hour, 48-hour green uh, you know, negative test. So I can sort of be sure that at least here, I'm not, not very likely to encounter people that are in the throes of deep COVID, right? To go from that sort of nervous quasi sense of safety to a complete situation of it, total ignorance about who you're, who's, who you're sitting next to, who's breathing on you, what the cab, previous occupant of the cab you're, dri- you're taking was, and so forth. Complete uncertainty and complete fear. Uh, now, I don't know what's going to happen when I get back. Things change so quickly. So the first wave, as you mentioned, is probably already peaking. But there will be another wave and yet another wave. And we don't really know, you know, exactly what's going to be entailed. But yeah, it's, it's a crazy situation. Even I have a feeling even if I were in Beijing, it would be right now, it'd be hard to to get a sense of the pulse of the city because it's so diverse. 
they're changing so fast. Yeah, and of course, the, the, the big question everyone's asking is, you know, we, we're just kind of entering the Chunyun, the big annual period right. when so many people traditionally, this is, you know, pre-COVID and even to some extent during COVID, but especially pre-COVID, millions of people who are getting from the cities, going back to the countryside, many migrant workers, many laborers, many construction workers. In fact, many people who are under like annual labor contracts get paid their the bulk of their salary right about now. Right. They take that home. So it's a, it's a big deal. Of course, with travel restrictions more or less being lifted across the country, a lot of people are like, this is the first time I'm going to go home and see mom and dad, my, sometimes my right. kids, my wife, my husband, yeah. um, two or three years. And the, the reality is, of course, that a lot of these a lot of these folks are going to be pouring out of cities that have become very COVID hotspots and, and going into the countryside. Right. Whereas where you, as you and I know, getting sick in Beijing, getting sick in Shanghai is an experience. Getting right. sick in a rural county in Sichuan, Qinghai, that's a right. whole other thing. And yeah. So we'll, yeah. it'll be really interesting to see what what that looks like on the other side. We enter into you know, March and April. And uh, you know, hopefully it isn't the catastrophe that everyone, that everyone I'm reading seems to predict it will be, but yeah. I'm not, I'm not filled with optimism uh, about what this is going to look like. Well, we're all, yeah, I think we're all in that boat, but you mentioned making plans and academic plans. Have you been following the, uh, the very fast uh, changes and opening of the visa situation for entering China? Yeah, you know, it's been, it's, it's been interesting because for David, like you, one of my specialties, one of the things that I do is I, I teach courses for international students who are studying in China, usually on semester programs or year-long programs, or then sometimes also on short-term summer programs led by other you know, faculty from the home institution. And of course, since 2019, those programs, those students have not been coming to China. And I, I'm obviously very excited about the possibility of a return to that. But, uh, you know, it seems like there's going to be some steps that need to be taken, even with the lowering of restrictions, uh, before we start to see students coming back, even at the numbers that we saw in 2018, 2019, which at the time, for at least the students I work with, again, these st traditional study abroad semester, year-long academic, year-long students, had already started to decline, you know, from a peak, you know, right around 2010, 2011, especially here, I'm also talking specifically, and it's an important caveat, uh, students coming from North American right. uh, universities. Right. So one thing I was going to, I wanted to kind of talk about and, and, and get your input on too, is I think when we talk about, there's been a lot of, in the media, we read a lot about people talking about the return of students to China and that students coming back to China and the number of students from this place, that place, studying in China. And I think it's worth, I think sometimes in these articles and in these discussions, uh, there's not always, it's not always clear what kind of students they're talking about. Because when we think about international education in China, there's a lot of different layers there. And Dave, I thought I was wondering maybe you because you have even longer experience in this field than I do. Maybe walk us through what are some of these different layers of students who study in China and what is it in, in from different places? Yeah, okay. I think probably uh, we tend to be a little bit America U.S. centric. Uh, I know some of most of the the media is as if as if Americans were the only students who studied in China. I go. I'm at a university where there are no small amount of uh, four-year degree students, undergraduates, and then also some, some graduates, including doctoral students, who are there from other countries and other regions, from, this, from Russia, 
from the Middle East, from various African countries. And those, those students are in China not as on a semester program like we used or a two-semester program like we used to teach for or a summer program or a short, uh, short-term faculty-led program. These are students who are enrolled and they're getting a real and honest-to-goodness academic degree in China. Those people were the probably the most infor- unfortunate ones when, when the shutdown happened, the, the borders shut down, because they were not just uh, going to China to sort of get the experience and learn some Mandarin. They wanted they needed a, a degree to get their career going. So some of them found ways. Some of them stayed, and I, I know some of those people. Some of those figured out a way to get back at some point, or their school helped them. Others just gave up. Uh, so even right now on the campus I am, those students who are not American students by and large are still, will definitely come back because they have to. And if they haven't, then they've figured out other ways to to get their degree. For the programs we used to teach for, and I say used to because they have all virtually all shut down or are, are in such a pit, pathetic online form that they really aren't the same program that they were at normal times. I'm talking about uh, my RCET program, CIEA, IES, the Beijing Center, and so forth. Those programs basically died or are put on life support after the COVID because there's simply no way to get a a visa. And it may be a prolonged uh, coma that they will be in because there's going to be such aversion, fear, and uncertainty about the situation in China for for American students to to come here and study that it's certainly not going to open up at the end of, at, by the end of this year. So you have to, first of all, make that division in terms of American studying. But there are these other, in addition to these study abroad, we call them programs, and they had different durations and different uh, uh, sort of formats. But usually they were uh, American students associated with one or another liberal arts college or some U.S. college who, who, who would send students here to Beijing or there to Beijing to get Mandarin training and get some cultural education. In addition to that, you have a new thing that wasn't a case when we were teaching in the 90s and 2000s, which was are these new elite programs uh, that are uh, branch university programs, NYU in Shanghai, Duke Kunshan, and others. Those are very likely to to spring back very quickly. And from the information that we have with the opening of X1 and 2 visas, they are, in fact, students are flooding back in, in great numbers. And they may, may be, the people are optimistic that the fall semester might be as, as full and diverse as any they've had since the, the, the pandemic occurred. Uh, so those programs, we could be very optimistic about because they're very, uh, the students are very invested in, in them. They already have the. They have a lot of uh, Chinese governmental approval and support to implement these visas and get the students here. And of course, it's a great cross-cultural and cross cross uh, international you know, academic program. And the, the government's going to put a lot of emphasis on those. So, so the people I've talked to, uh, reporters and such, say that those are very. They're very optimistic. That those programs will bounce back quickly. There are uh, other two programs that you and I are very familiar with, the Schwartzman program at Tsinghua and the, the Yanjing program at Beida at Peking University that are elite sort of master's prestige degree programs. programs, prestige programs. Yeah. And those uh, also, they survived even during the pandemic because, uh, quite frankly, it wasn't so much about being in China, although they certainly wanted to, and that would have been a very important part of their education. But basically, those programs are 
it's uh, partly about the cohort and the degree and the prestige, as you said. So those programs have survived. The Schwarzman has, has already got students back. And I think Yanjing will. Uh, so, so you have to split it into two categories. One are these prestige programs or the university-associated programs. The other are these in, more independent and, and fragmented, different format, uh, what we call study abroad programs that accounted for quite a bit of the amount of students every year in the in the heyday, as you said before, two thousand uh, that maybe peaked at the two thousand eight Olympics and then kind of fell back. Fell the trajectory went downhill after that. Those programs, because they, as you said, the trajectory is already in a down downhill uh, movement, and uh, now with so many problems China faces, the U.S. China relationship deteriorating, and the suspicion. And the fact that parents and teachers, I mean, parents and faculty and the, and the students especially, you know, they have to pay their own way to get to Beijing or to Shanghai and enter one of those programs that those, which is a significant proportion, are not likely to come back anytime soon. Certainly not this year. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. You know, I think we saw a decline of students enrolled in those programs in the 2010s in general. Part of that was just because, you know, 2008, 2009, because the Olympics were such a, such a high watermark. I think also changes in American academia uh, was becoming increasingly difficult for students to leave <clears throat> the campus for an entire year and still maintain a track to graduate. What I, what I did see, which was very interesting, beginning around in the 2010s, because of that was more and more students choosing to come to China on the short-term faculty-led programs. These are where a faculty member says, we're going to China for three weeks, four weeks in the summer or during a January term. And you know those became more and more popular because I think students felt, I can, I can commit four weeks to this. I can't commit a whole semester. I can't commit a whole year. And that's particularly true for students in very rigorous degree programs like STEM or engineering. And for, for me, uh, you know, just the part of what I do, I was seeing more and more of my business trans, uh, transition from teaching, you know, many courses for students who are enrolled, who are here on a semester program to where I was bouncing around between like three weeks with this program, four weeks of this program, three weeks of this program, helping out and lecturing in, in, that, in that, that context. I feel like depending upon how the visa system comes back. So, you know, you have the L visa, which is for tourists, the X1 and X2 for different levels of Shuisheng or, or students. Depending upon how those visa, those visa policies um, change, I think we may see some very brave short-term programs start to come back yeah. before, obviously, we see the semester students come back. But it also, one question I'm asking for both personal, professional reasons is what, how, as you said, what will be the demand? Are students going to be willing to the extra, the extra cost, the extra hassle to come to China? Is there a demand to come to China to have this kind of cultural language learning experience? It almost reminds me, I have a hypothesis here that many of the students who are going to come, it's not that students won't come, but a certain kind of, it'll revert back to another era when students came to China because it was more of an adventure. Because China, I mean, this isn't true, but you know, the, the mentality, it's a little bit scary. It's a little bit out there. It's a little bit edgy. It's not like in 2010, like, woohoo, let's go to the clubs in, in Shanghai. It's a little bit more like, okay, so what's going on in the heart of the mm -hmm. dragon? To quote probably every, you know, any number of pamphlets that are in mm -hmm. study abroad programs. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that will be kind of interesting, more like the students who are coming like in the early 90s or even, and, and, and you, you 
can speak to this better than I can, like in the 1980s. I think you've identified one component of, of those particular students that are likely to come back. But I would say it's probably less the the woohoo adventure students who want to say, let's go into the belly of the dragon. But what I have made contact with and some people that I know that have contacted me continually throughout the pandemic, there there is and always will be a smaller group of students who are just dedicated, interested China scholars. They see it the China as, geeks. A, as yeah, yeah, the China geeks, the ones who would come hell or high water no matter what. What our situation? Our people, right now. The problem is that it's hard to economically justify a full program with just those number of students because they're not going to be thirty, fifty, sixty, eighty people in a semester. It's going to be ten very, very de- dedicated students, and that's that not economically very feasible. So that goes along with what you're saying. I I also think that the the next generation of these programs are going to be a little bit experimental. They're going to be a little risky. They're going to be uh, perhaps funded by by organizations that want to fund fund these things. I don't know how. I don't have no idea how the funding is going to work, but the the usual sorts of academic organizations that send the students here and that was their business model are going to have to drastically revo- revise that that business model. They're going to have to first of all be able to get in touch with the, the dedicated students and give, make it worth their while to actually spend the money and come there. And then, of course, they also can, you know, cleverly market their uh, their program to attract those people who are just curious or might to to make the case that China can be a part of their future, which is a, getting a hard to, was a hard case to make in the last three years. So I think, you know, a lot of my former students, a lot of the people that I know at, at these elite programs certainly fall into that category. The uh, the problem is that this I'd like to just touch on this quickly. This touches on this information asymmetry that we've talked about, you know, many, many times. Uh, before I left, uh, I had a dinner with some people at the embassy. I think we mentioned this in the podcast uh, that somebody at the embassy said that there were only 300 American students studying in all of China at that point at the, during the pandemic. 300 contrasted with three, 300,000 Chinese students studying at American universities. That's what we're looking at. So even if even if we do get students back in China at, the, at these programs in whatever capacity, this this uh, deficit or this information asymmetry is going to be very very serious for the next foreseeable future. A minuscule amount of Americans wandering around China, learning Chinese, learning, making contacts, making future contacts for future collaboration for diplomatic circles uh, and so forth, right? These are going to be the future diplomats and business people uh, that deal with China. And there just ain't enough of them. And I think no matter how optimistic we are and how dedicated we can get some of the people in there, this is a serious problem. And I think I think this is one of the most important problems right now in the terms of cross international education is how do we get more students in from Europe, from wherever, but we're Americans. And so we care about the American, the, the US-China relationship. How do we get more students in China learning the, the, the place? It's so many generations already after three years of future China hands have already never materialized. They never got off the ground because they simply couldn't come here. How long is that going to go on? And how can we make sure that it doesn't, uh, isn't, isn't a permanent disjointed uh, decoupling, I guess, is the only word you'd use. You know, I remember about just a little over 10 years ago, uh, you and I were involved in some of the meetings 
for something called the 100,000 Initiative. This was an initiative by President Obama to try to boost the number of students going to China. The goal was 100,000, which in retrospect seems about as naive as that time <laughs> he gave a paper shredder to Joe Biden for Christmas. In yeah. retrospect- 100,000 100, strong, I think it was. 100,000 right. strong. And I, 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 I mean, big supporter of the initiative, although I do think that one of the challenges was the apple orange comparison of students, as you pointed out, students coming to China versus from America specifically. Uh, going to China versus Chinese students going to United States universities. And of course, the difference is that very few students from North America or from the United States were going to China to get a degree. They right. were going for the experience. Mm -hmm. Many people that I know, you know, talking to students who are going to the United States for university, and this is true, I guess, would also be possibly true of Australia and Europe, but I'm speaking particularly about the U.S. at the moment. They were like, yeah, it's interesting to go to the U.S. It's part of the experience. But my goal is to get that degree. I think that that difference in motivation also reflects the, right. the, the, the huge disparity in numbers and also, frankly, what that means for the experience itself. Because here's the other situation. Those students going from China to the United States are usually there for multiple years. Their language ability, because they're taking classes in, the, in English, is so much greater in terms of improvement than even the most dedicated semester or year-long student coming to China, even in a hardcore program like IUP program at Tsinghua, which is right. Chinese boot camp. So right. uh, yeah, I think that's that's always been one of my questions about, you know, we're looking at this like students going this way, students going that way, but we're not really always, I don't know if these programs, these initiatives always think about the why and the what's the, again, what is the ultimate goal of these students when they go to these places. We have to be sort of focused on what's possible and not what's sort of aspirational. I mean, that's all you can do. And you and I both have seen ups and downs, large numbers and then decreasing numbers. But even in the, in the later semesters when we had pretty small numbers, there were always students there who learned a lot, became inspired, caught the China bug, and have gone on to become really interesting scholars doing research in this area or doing their professional lives are entangled in China in some way. That makes me happy. That makes me feel a sense of gratification that we did something. And even if it's just two or three people, those two or three people can be very, very important to uh, even to this day. I mean, I could, I could give you accounts of some of my former CET students who are still involved in China and doing some amazing things. And they may have been only, you know, one of a handful, two or three or four people during that semester that actually actually could feel what China was could be and what the what had the importance of being being there and learning about it and then making it part of their uh, career, not just for their own career but also just for the, the the advancement safety of the of the planet. We we really really have to cooperate with this culture and this country. We have to understand it. So I think that it's going to be harder. There's a lot of uh, stumbling blocks and there's a lot a lot of uh, sort of less than ideal situations one of them being that one of them being that uh, academic freedom is definitely a, a bigger challenge now than it was before the pandemic and before and the, than it was before Xi Jinping so a lot of the a lot of the experiences the cool factor the the wow factor where students could actually get inside of a Chinese organization meet some people join a rock band or whatever it is they did and uh, get some real deep insights into the culture. That's going to be more difficult. 
visas are going to be more difficult. Resistance among faculty, parents is going to be more difficult. That's just a fact. And we have to just deal with that. We're, the golden age may never come back. But that doesn't stop us from saying we've got to we've got to plow ahead and we've got to get back this. We've got to return to at least some kind of back and forth where you have students uh, doing internships. That's also a difficulty. China is not as open to internships. Jeremiah, you've said uh, several times, you know, we used to say we want to study China and understand China. And the the message we get from China is we don't want to be studied. (laughs) You don't need to. We don't need you to study us. We don't need you to to understand us. We'll, we'll, we'll tell we'll tell you what you need to know about us. Yeah, yeah. We we we've yeah. already have a, a a pamphlet here that has everything you need to know. Just go home and learn that. Right. All we all we can do is rejoice in the fact that the borders are open. Try to push the X one and X two as much as we can. And you and I will always be there. I hope to to be give the lectures to help set up the program to deal with the faculty, and hopefully hopefully just to interact with students and make them realize. What an amazing, challenging, and, and vitally important task it is to to get into China, learn language, and, and understand the people, and, and meet people, Chinese people, and recreate long-lasting relationships with them. That's the way I look at the future. I wouldn't say optimistically or even pessimistically, just realistically. The need is still there. The importance is still there. And there are students who see that, and that they, they will sacrifice and find creative ways to, to, to uh, do something. In China, we just need to get the doors open, get all the bullshit out of the way, and uh, let them come here. That's my philosophical, you know, standpoint. There's one more cohort I want to talk about today before we before we end the episode. But I want to go back to something you said really quickly about students accessing the cultural experience at a time of decreasing right. academic freedom, which is absolutely an important thing to a factor to consider. But I'm going to offer one of my uh, completely unscientific, totally anecdotal, and probably Twitter people are going to give me 90,000 different um, like examples of how I'm wrong. But I look back at my experience working with these kind of semester programs, general programs. The students, you know, many, this is going back now to the 2000s. So, so students that I've worked with now, of course, are some of them are even in their 30s. I look back at the students who I know are still engaged with China, who are actually even living in China, even still living in China in the yeah. age of COVID. Yeah. It was not, there is a surprisingly high number of students who did not fit the ideal of the student with the flashcards and diligently going to class every single day and like doing well on their Tingxie dictations and exams. It is a very high purport, high percentage of students who frankly at the time I was a teacher were like kind of frustrated because they were the ones who were going out to the bars, playing in rock bands, hanging out with their homestay parents late at night, drinking baijiu and like playing mahjong and then not showing up for class the next day. <laughs> not all of those students, but uh, but I think back to the students who I, I know who are still in China. A lot of them kind of fit somewhere on that model. On, on the spectrum, yeah. they lean that way. And I wonder if part of that is just that being out there was mm-hmm. actually a far greater experience than just interacting with Chinese classes or, for that matter, me. And so yeah. I, I wonder about when students come back, yeah, academic freedom is going to be an issue. Internships are going to be a freedom. But it, 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 internships is going to be an issue. But still, that's just the being here, the stepping off the plane. There, there are other areas of collaboration and there, you know, we had bubbles of security or bubbles of isolation or bubbles of secrecy that, 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 the, that the government wasn't 
that wasn't accessible to the government. You know, the technology is still there. And there's all kinds of ways to create safe environments where people can interact and, and do meaningful things that we old farts don't even know about or haven't even picked up on yet. So, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're going to find a way. They will find a way to have meaningful experiences, despite lack of openness and academic freedom. You know, they will. Well, there's one last cohort I want to talk about is is the cohort of professional academics. These are people who are in academia. And I'm thinking particularly of people who are early career or graduate students or early career academics, the ones who are working on their dissertation or have Graduate have finished, completed their PhD, but now are either, either tenure track or adjunct faculty who need to get the books, the articles written. They need to get the research done so that they can ex- accelerate or advance their career. What do you think the last three years has meant for this group? And what do you think that's going to look like on the other side? Are, are people going to be concerned about coming back? Are they going to get the access they need? Is this even going to change? how we evaluate academics and their research productivity or the kind of research they're doing going forward. Yeah, that's a very, I agree. That's an extremely important question. I think we may have covered a little bit this with uh, Mara Cunningham on the podcast we did with her. I cannot remember right offhand specifically everything we talked about, but I think she's someone who has thought about that a lot. So people who are interested should go back to the Mara Cunningham podcast and and listen to that because she's very, has some some very insightful things to say about that, I think. At the the time we talked to Mara, it was kind of hypothetical because we were still in the middle of like COVID. Okay, so now the restrictions are being lifted. There's a chance that visas are going to be relatively normalized in the near future. Are these academic, are academics who are based outside of China, are they gearing up like, okay, as soon as that visa, I can get that visa, I'm heading in? Or is there going to be some trepidation? I don't see much of a difference I certainly don't see much of an opening up. We've already seen academics get kicked out. You probably know some, I know some, who tried to do research and couldn't. We've also seen probably more than than a, a few academics who started out with an idea and soon realized it wasn't feasible and had to either water down or change their original research proposal or their research direction. You know, we've also had people get very creative and uh, figure out ways to uh, to sort of uh, study a or focus on a situation and get data in a kind of oblique way, in very creative oblique ways to get data that's indicative of uh, uh, like metadata <laughs> that can give you insight into other data structures. So, I mean, scholars definitely have to be creative, probably very uh, cyber savvy in terms of uh, collecting information these days, but they're you're ne- we're never going to go back to the good old days when they could go out to Guizhou, to the countryside and live and interact with people and get, unless it's something really, really safe, but there's no such thing as a really safe domain. Now, even if you're just a linguist trying to get uh, information on the dialectical variations of Tibetan, you know, they're just not going to get access and they're going to be very suspicious of anything you're doing. But that's just another bad news uh, area that, that, Certain things, certain some some of the openness that we experienced in the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, it's never going to come back. Uh, you're going to be monitored extremely uh, carefully, no matter what you do, and with greater ease because you're you're going to have to have a WeChat, you know, app, and you're going to have they're going to know your all your whereabouts. But having said all that, <laughs> it's still worth it to try. It's still worth it to get in here. And also, I would also say just something that's probably a little more optimistic, which is that 
especially in the scholarly community, not so much in the political community, but in the scholarly community, basically all the people that are work that you work with in China, the professors, the people that you want to get data from or collaborate with, we're all on the same boat or we all see things from the same vantage point. We're scholars. We see the information is important. We see education is important. We see data as sacrosanct. And if you can make contact, good contacts where people trust you and you can work with them, believe me, there are ways you can get the data. There are ways that you can study a, a, a sensitive topic uh, if you know the right people and you know how to do it. And that's because of the goodwill that exists between this, the world of scholarship the world of acad- of academicians of scholars is a a, a very like minded one, Jeremiah. As you well know, I mean, and once you're with those people, they're not Chinese and they're not Western and they're not anything. They are just scholars, intellectuals, people who are interested in ideas. That's never going to go away. So I, I, I'm optimistic that if we could just get people in China, then they can figure out ways of interacting and and collaborating with scholars in a productive way. That's I still think that's possible, even in the the very controlled and, and hyper-surveilled the a- atmosphere that, that we live in now in China. I think there's still a possibility of real real research, really good research, and really interesting insights into China. I still think that's possible. I appreciate your ending on, a, on an optimistic and idealistic note. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, so, you know, sometimes we have these discussions, it's kind of like, yeah, so things have changed, but it's it's just going to get worse. And so I'm glad that we managed to end this in a, in a way that for those of you still listening, you're like, okay, so not all doom and gloom. Trying to look at the calendar, I feel like the next time we're going to talk will probably be either just before or just around the Chinese New Year, which is coming up, Year of the Rabbit. I'll be back in Beijing at the end of the month. When are you, if you if you don't mind divulging your travel plans, when are you? I, I should be back in Beijing at the beginning of February. So about okay. the same time. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully we can reconvene over dumplings yeah. and uh, you know festivities and we can tape the episode live. But thank you for, for, for logging in um, from yeah, Taiwan. You too. Enjoy the rest of your time with your family. Thank you all for listening. Uh, you can find Barbarians at the Gate wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast. You can also, of course, find us on Twitter. I am at Jeremiah Jenny. David, you are at... On Twitter, it's just David double underscore Moser. There we go. So you can always send us a message if you want to, if you have something you'd like to share about the podcast. Thank you again for joining us. We'll talk to you again next time. Cue the drums. <laughs>